Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up, and do not be afraid. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. My girls are really into the Super Bowl. And their enthusiasm has very little to do with which teams are playing or who is performing during the halftime show or the quality of the commercials, but is tied instead to the fact that it is the one night of the year when we eat dinner in front of the television. <laughs> and even though it is usually just the five of us, we go all out when it comes to the menu. We make sliders and homemade pretzels, hummus and veggies, Cece's famous fruit skewers, and at least two kinds of queso. To be clear, it is an unreasonable amount of food and would be for twice as many people. And this year, Sarah Beth found a queso recipe from a cookbook by a Texas-based influencer, a friend of someone in the parish, actually. It is almost embarrassingly decadent. The base is the requisite Velveeta and Rotel, but the recipe also features chorizo and chopped cilantro and any number of other ingredients designed to gild the lily. And the result was overwhelming, but admittedly tasty. And this author is clearly very proud of her recipe. In her description of the dish, she wrote, I would serve this to Jesus if he came over for football Saturday. Now, leaving aside the question of what our Lord might have to say about processed cheese-based appetizers, or what he would make of football, for that matter, the question of what one might serve to Jesus actually touches on one of the more significant aspects of the Christian life. Namely, how are we supposed to relate to this person whom we call Lord and Master? And this question seems to be part of what is motivating Peter in the text we heard from Matthew's Gospel this morning. Jesus has taken the inner circle of disciples to the top of the mountain where his appearance changes and the disciples see Moses and Elijah, the ultimate representatives of the law and the prophets, speaking with Jesus, apparently blessing him and his ministry. Peter clearly recognizes that this is an important moment, one that invites a response from those who are witnessing it. And while the evangelist does not say so explicitly, we have to imagine that Peter is probably worried about getting his response right. After all, the last action in the gospel was Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, in Matthew's gospel, that was not Peter's finest moment. After announcing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus praises Peter, 
telling him that flesh and blood have not revealed these things to him and promising that he now possesses the keys to the kingdom. But when Jesus goes on to foretell his crucifixion and death, and when Peter responds, as I think any reasonable person would, God forbid it, Lord. Jesus lets Peter have it, calling him Satan, accusing him of being a stumbling block to God's mission in the world. Six days later, Peter is probably still smarting from these words, even if he is grateful to see that he remains part of the inner circle. So when this transfiguration occurs, and these important figures from Jewish history appear alongside Jesus, one has to imagine that Peter sees this as an opportunity to redeem himself. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, uh, we can make you three dwellings, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I assume he would have offered queso if he had by the way, only Matthew's account includes that, if you wish, highlighting Peter's hesitancy after his last significant interaction with Jesus. But of course, the poor guy gets it wrong again. Before he can even finish making this extraordinary offer of hospitality, let me build you a house! A voice from heaven interrupts him and says, This is my son. Listen to him. And Peter collapses in fear. And naturally, it's the fear that is associated with all theophanies, those manifestations of God's presence that occur throughout Scripture. But I think there is a deeper fear here. I think Peter is afraid that he has failed, that he is never going to get it right, that he has squandered the opportunity Jesus offered to him and is now going to be rejected. All Peter wants to do is serve. All he wants to be is the person God is calling him to be. And Peter is afraid that he is never going to get it right. That he will always come up short. And I have to say, Peter's fear feels awfully familiar to me. While I am not primarily worried about saying the wrong things to Jesus, I have the Book of Common Prayer after all, <laughs> those questions of whether I am doing what I am supposed to do or being who I am supposed to be, whew, those feel pretty relevant to my life. Indeed, I think a lot of us have an inner monologue that is animated by the same self-doubt Peter seems to exhibit. Am I a good enough parent, a devoted enough spouse, a dutiful enough child, 
a committed enough citizen, a passionate enough advocate for justice, a faithful enough Christian. Am I enough? And to all of these questions, Jesus offers the same response he gives to Peter as he cowers in fear on the mountaintop. Get up and do not be afraid. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus does not say, hey, what are you worried about? You're good enough. And you know why? Because we're not. We are all sinful and broken, failing our way through life. I've said it before, and I will say it again. I think one of the most important verses of Scripture is Romans 3.23. And you can say it with me if you want. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the good news, the indescribably good news, is that God does not see us through the lens of our sins. God sees us through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why right after Jesus tells Peter not to be afraid, he descends the mountain and begins the long road to Calvary. Because that is the place where Peter's fear and our fear are ultimately dispelled. It's hard for me to think of a more succinct and beautiful expression of Peter's anxiety and our Lord's response than the poem entitled Love Three by George Herbert. The poem has been set to music by a number of composers, and our assistant rector for community life had it printed on the back of the pew sheet at her ordination to the diaconate. The poet imagines a conversation between Jesus, whom he <coughs> identifies as love, and someone convinced that they are unworthy of that love. And it's worth quoting in its entirety. And if you like, you can follow along in your pew sheet. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. Yet quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and, smiling, did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my sin go where it doth deserve. 
And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. If we let it, God's love will pierce all our self-doubt and our sense of unworthiness. And ultimately, and you knew I was going to get there, this is what Lent is all about. As we descend from the mountain today and begin our 40-day pilgrimage of penitence and renewal this Wednesday, we ought to focus not primarily on what we can do to please God, but on how we can sit and rest in what God has already accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How we can rest in the finished work of Jesus. Our call as the people of God is not to serve in response to our unworthiness. Our call as God's people is to give of ourselves in response to God's love, a love that casts out fear.